1: We're all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome, everyone. You know, once in a while, a photo comes across my desk, and I just know that it is is an animal we're going to have to talk about on the show. Of course. Uh, So. Now, you at home listening, I can't see the exact photo I'm about to show my co-hosts. But I want you to either check out our social media or do an image search for the Lowland Street Tenrec. That's T-E-N-R-E-C. And so now that I've said that, I want my uh, talented co-hosts. Can you please uh, do your best to describe Uh,
0: what you see
1: in this picture uh, for the (laughs) listeners?
0: What? It is a shrew crossed with a porcupine, crossed with a bee. <laughs> <laughs> That's really
2: actually very accurate. I was going to say but, that okay. maybe a, it like, it looks a lot like uh, I'm going to stick with the shrew or a vole with a really long okay. snout. Like uh-huh. really big mouse ears. And then it looks like it got like that dandelions got attached to it. And it's just <laughs> spiky. But it's black well, yeah. and white, Earth, black and yellow, like a it bee. It is. That's why I said dandelion. Yeah. yeah. This is
1: a lowland streaked tenric. Uh So what? Yeah, I like the the bee thing. I hadn't really thought about that. It's um, it, we should have, for people who aren't looking at it who are in the car or something. That's purely in reference to its its coloration. It's it's a yellow and black. Yeah. Mammal. Uh, it doesn't have wings. It Does not have wings. No, that would be oh, that'd be so cool. But it does have quills and spines on it uh it has fur um i think it looks like a pokemon uh there's sort of a pikachu type Mm. aspect to it uh electra is
2: it called i don't remember it's yeah it would
1: definitely be an electric uh, pokemon yeah um i i I saw this and i'm like this is (laughs) such a cool looking animal
2: it looks so cool (laughs)
1: But I really hope there's something interesting about it besides what it looks like, because that's the one thing our listeners <laughs> like can't <laughs> see if they're looking at the podcast. Yeah, it's not a visual podcast, so there is <laughs> there is more to it. Um, so I, I know there isn't any scale in the photo I show you guys, uh, but so you can tell it looks um, real
2: small. It looks
0: like yeah, they
1: only they're only f- about five and a half inches long.
0: That is so, so pretty tiny, s- pretty
1: small, not teeny tiny. Like it's it's bigger than a shrew it, uh, that you it's both like reference. The shrew. size of
2: a they're about yeah
1: yeah i mean it's it, you could you It would fit in the palm of your hands which just makes it oh so cute um so it sounds like they can get a little bit larger maybe eight inches but like five and a half is mm-hmm. uh referred to as the average of these cute little things so tenrecs in general are fascinating uh so First off, the lowland streaked tamarack is a or tenrec is a small mammal uh, that is endemic to a place that we've mentioned a few times on the show. They're from Madagascar.
0: Oh, Ooh. cool.
1: So they fill in um, some niches that a lot of other animals in other places do that don't exist well, no, the niches exist. Like, there's animals that don't exist on Madagascar or have not historically, mm-hmm. and so when tenrecs showed up there, they ended up filling a bunch of niches that are filled by other animals in other places. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. And through convergent evolution, which is where like the same pressures tend to create the same outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, tenrecs and which are many different species of tenrecs, um, have grown to resemble a bunch of other species we know, so they can look like mice they can look like hedgehogs, they can look like opossums. Uh, it's really Whoa. quite impressive how different and in different sizes and different colors and different shapes mm-hmm. they can be. Uh, they can be found in trees, so some of them are considered arboreal, they spend their whole lives in trees. Other of them spend their whole lives in the ground. Some of them are even aquatic and spend their life in the water. So it's Whoa. really wild how much they've diversified. Wow. They've had they've had a lot of time to do it though. Um they've been hanging out in Madagascar evolving in the different forms for a really long time. Their closest mm-hmm. relatives are the African shrews. So you guys both uh-huh. nailed it by saying they look like shrews. They are related to shoes ho- shrews. <laughs> <Not> How <shoes. laughs> shrews, not shrews, shrews. But they, sp- it's believed that they split off evolution from an evolutionary standpoint from the shrews um, somewhere around forty-seven to fifty-three million years ago. Oh wow! Ooh. And they probably that's a distant relative. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact number. I think they feel like they've been in Madagascar for over 20 million years. Mm. Uh, so they, they've definitely had a lot of time to fill in all those different niches and, and evolve into different species of tenrecs. Mm-hmm. So I do want to focus in on the lowland streak tenrec. Uh, like I said, the tenrec has specialized into many forms and the lowland streak tenrec most closely resembles a hedgehog. So it looks like a cute little hedgehog. It even yeah. has those spi- the spines you guys pointed out. And I wanted to focus in on those. But one quick note first, and I think this makes them uh, even cuter, is that they eat earthworms. Aww. And I know, okay, that's maybe not all that cute because earthworms are kind of gross. But um, so cute though. how they catch them is extremely cute. So worms will come up to the surface when there's like a thumping on the ground like you can buy little vibrating rods you can put in the ground to make worms come out when you want to go fishing Mm -hmm. um and if you read the book dune or saw the movie like these the big thumpers Mm -hmm. to like call the giant sand worms out of the out of the sand yeah um this is a a real thing though like um there's a number of animals that have figured this out in the animal world and literally they will woodcocks do that too yeah, yeah, yeah. The root do like a little dance where they kind of like stomp on the ground. And these tenrecs do the same thing. They will do a little like cute little foot stomping thing on the ground. Aww. And that makes the earthworms come up and then they viciously eat them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I just, the little idea of these little guys like stomping their feet, like this sounds so.
2: They're doing a super little dance.
1: adorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay. I just had to get that out of the way because I want to talk about the quills. Mm-hmm. So here in North America, we're familiar with quills in the form of porcupine quills. And Rachel, you're up in porcupine country now. Actually, yeah, I am. You, 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 <laughs> have, you have a cap a captive porcupine where you work, right? Right. An education porcupine is it still there?
2: We used to have one. Oh, oh no longer there. No, no okay. longer. A lot of our animals, a lot of our uh, ambassador animals, like found new homes during. Our, oh, during COVID. During COVID. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, last time I was up at the place where Rachel now works, there was a education ambassador, porcupine. Super Named cute. Thistle. But, yeah, Thistle. Right. <laughs> Na- uh, much, uh, much larger uh, than this little tenrec, mm-hmm. though. But so, like, the quills are made out of keratin, very similar to a, a porcupine uh, quill, and. Um similar to porcupines and and hedgehogs the quills are certainly for defense. I mean it is tough to eat an animal with quills, right? Some of them on the wreck are even detachable quills like a porcupine oh, that could, you know, okay. get stuck into an animal that tried to eat it. Yeah. Um that's not too strange or surprising, but what is really cool is that they use some of their quills for communication.
0: What? Say more.
1: Right. I know. So they actually have two different kinds of quills. They have those long defensive quills, but they have some other ones that they use to produce sound. And I'm going to have to hearken all the way back to our very first episode here uh, with the word stridulation. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> the yeah I remember
2: make, what that word means.
1: <clears throat> yeah, well, it was very... If you haven't listened to episode <laughs> one, <clears throat> I'm not going to spoil it for you. Uh, what was... The doing, title of the, the episode uh, tells you mm-hmm. a lot kind of gives it away yeah um <laughs> oh, but in yeah. this case what they're doing is they are they're rubbing these special quills together and it makes a noise and so everyone everyone listening to this has heard heard this in insects uh crickets mm. are a great example of, mm-hmm. of making that noise um, there's also snakes will will do stridulation to make noise mm-hmm. uh, but the tenrec is the only known mammal to use stradulation as a mm. means of communicating And they seem to communicate with their young, but also make a noise to warn predators. And I'm not totally sure how that second part works since it's like ultrasound or uh, ultrasound. Uh, So it's very high frequency and not Mm -hmm. all animals, especially, you know, humans can hear that. So I'd be very curious what animals are predating on them and is this like would that just tell them where they are so they'd want to eat them more or somehow the sound scares animals off? I'm not totally clear on how that works, but the research I was reading was suggesting that um, they use them both for communicating with each other and also for like scaring off predators. So that's pretty cool. Um, The researchers who were looking into this actually used bat detectors to hear the sounds because those transducers will, you know, bring that frequency down to something that humans can hear. And mm-hmm. they're able to kind of point them at the, the tenrex and, and hear these sounds and be like, oh my gosh, we assumed they were like basically pretty quiet animals, but in fact, they're making noise all the time and communicating with each other, which is very, very cool.
2: That's so, uh, so cool. So uh,
1: there is uh, one interesting lasso tidbit for everybody in this story. Uh, because they live in dense jungles in dim lighting and they use these high frequencies like bats. Mm-hmm. This has some researchers wondering, hmm. is it possible that maybe the Tenrex are also using the sound for echolocation <gasps> that to would help them find their way through these dark forests? That would be super cool. I did not find any research that has actually tested that. This is sort of like a, a hypothesis that's out there waiting to be tested as far as I know um if we, if I do find more research Ooh. about this showing that someone's actually tested this out, I'd be very curious to see that because they don't have like big bat ears no you they know, don't. for like so
2: they do seem not... to be like really like from the picture, they look really thin though, and like large ish for their body.
1: Yeah, so I it's it's fascinating uh, thought, and it would be interesting to, for some people to do more research on that. But hmm. so it hasn't necessarily, I don't think, been proven at this time. But it is yet another interesting facet to this super cool Pokemon of an animal. Hmm. Uh, so that's I just want to share it with you. If you ha- if you're not on a computer right now, you're driving, get to where you're going, and then look up all the photos of these. Uh, there's a lot of different Tenrex, but specifically the Lowland Street one is the one we're talking about today. Yeah, it'll uh, my be sources, our social. Exactly. And our sources this week were uh, the BBC, who actually helped film Tenrecs using Stradulation back in the 1960s and Wikipedia.
2: Nice.
1: Well, we're going to go to a break and when we come back it'll be Rachel. And do you have something colorful for us?
2: I do. Yay.
1: Excellent. I guess mine was kind of colorful this week too. So uh. we'll take a break and we'll be back with Rachel. Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strange by nature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature see you soon
2: all right everybody welcome back um so in continuation with my colorful theme um question for you two uh what color do you find at the end of a color wheel like where the purple I say end it's a wheel but where yeah, where like, purple what, what you, the
1: end of a wheel <laughs> it's a I'm like I'm a backwards okay, it's a quick question
2: where uh red and purple like connect what color is
0: that uh,
2: uh
1: where oh if you were to go all the way back like, around, mm-hmm.
0: what's what's in between red. red and purple is what you're asking yeah what is oh, no, what do you what is, call is, it rainbow, like
1: opposite ends kind
0: of like a mulberry sort of color burgundy kinda-ish. i'm gonna
1: call it a reddish purple
0: yeah okay
1: is that a lot i like mulberry i feel like those, this yeah. is mulberry sort of fears.
0: a i feel like you're looking for a specific answer that we're not coming up i with. know
1: i feel like we're i feel like we're failing mm. you yeah. what it, wh-
0: so what are you um, looking for rachel well there's a lot of uh debate
2: but generally speaking that color is called magenta magenta right right okay yeah i've okay. heard yeah. of that
0: one yeah, that's one of the that's yes. one
2: of the printer ink colors. Exactly. Can confirm, it's very yes. often in printer inks. Um,
1: CMYK action. Yep.
2: Mm hmm. But here's the thing. Um, magenta cannot actually exist on the visual spectrum. What now? Magenta doesn't
0: exist. I heard you. I heard you.
1: Come, come <laughs>
2: again. I've seen it. Uh huh.
1: I have I, also seen it, Rachel. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Um, Explain how it doesn't exist. <laughs> so, technically, it is an artificial color. It is not found in nature. All right. But, challenge accepted. <laughs> okay. It might be found in nature. So, Kirk, you actually kind of started getting us into it um, because what it is our, is our eyes and our brains tricking ourselves mm-hmm. and artificially creating this color. Separate
1: wavelengths coming together to create exactly a color that, yeah, for instance, I guess you, could, you could not create a magenta laser because there's yeah. no coherent wavelength mm, that is magenta.
2: Okay, exactly. Gotcha. It's our brains trying to like, solve this puzzle. So when it comes to waves of light, um, I believe we've talked a little bit about it before, but each color of light has its own wavelength. Uh, So reds tend to have a really slow, long wavelength. It takes a long Mm -hmm. time for reds to get anywhere. Um, That's often why like sunsets and things like that tend to have a more reddish uh, color to it because it's some of the last light that can reach us. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, you have violet or purple, um, which are high and fast wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So, So you have... Red on one side of the spectrum with really long, slow wavelengths, and then you have purple on the other side of the spectrum that is high and fast wavelengths. Those s- wavelengths cannot technically like mesh together to create a new color. Um, human eyes are only really able to detect red, blue, and green light. And yeah. mm-hmm. that's what our rods and our cones are able to uh, decipher at, when it comes to color. So it's those three mixtures that comes up with all of the colors that we see, all of the variations. Right. Right. But our eyes, what we see when we see a color that is between purple and red, there's no green light at all in it.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So
2: your brain is trying to fill in those gaps. And that gap ends up being magenta. But it, it, Technically speaking, it should turn it into green. <laughs> but our brain says that that makes no sense. And since our brain is... our, Because you wouldn't expect blue and red to mesh, and all of a sudden there's green, right?
0: Right. So instead, our brain came up with I don't understand why it should look like green, though. Because...
2: Um, so it's averaging... Uh, the colors and the wavelength in the middle of. Oh, okay. So if you average the wavelength, wavelength in the middle of blue, it would be green. A violet and red, it would be okay. green.
0: Uh, so that's, basically, that's a good thing. the magenta is just like an artifact that your brain comes up with. Yeah. To deal with this uh, dissonance.
2: Yes, because it makes no logical sense to us that it would turn, it would be green. So it mixes the colors together to create magenta, a color that doesn't exist.
1: Huh. Yeah. Right. And if we have, if people are wondering, you're sort of thinking, like, well, wait, but I have like a magenta shirt or I have a magenta paint. Right. Like, isn't that, it's like, well, no, it's, it is reflecting both of those wavelengths at the same time. And your brain mm-hmm. is combining them into one color, which is kind of how all color, not how all, I mean, there are discrete wavelengths of like just, Single colors. That's really fascinating. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah it's also hard to understand. Wrapper brands. Yeah,
2: because technically speaking, like we want it to make sense. We want it to exist. Like, why would it not? It doesn't make any sense. But technically speaking, it's a color that doesn't exist. So mm.
0: there must be others uh, too.
2: Um, I'm sure there. Is magenta is the one that has come up a lot more for me or from when I was looking at when I was looking for colors that didn't technically exist. But that tends to be um, it, it tends to just be magenta that comes up just because it's uh, it is that variation of violet and red.
0: OK, hmm.
1: well, there, there's so there's something that can come up that that I was familiar with. It's yeah. called it's called an impossible color. Did you come up mm. upon that when you're reading stuff? So it, I think, I the, think with I the magenta, yeah, yeah, with magenta, like our, uh, we can perceive that. There's some mm-hmm. other colors because the way our, you know, the, the our eyes work, you just can't, we can't see those colors because they, to oversimplify it, they they cancel each other out. Right. Uh, there's a really cool thing you can do actually if you go to Wikipedia and search for impossible colors. The easiest way to find these. There's two colors. There's a blue yellow and a red green. Oh. And mm. you you can't there is no color that is blue plus green or sorry blue plus yellow and there really isn't a color that's red plus green. Mm-hmm. Um I mean you you could you could mix those colors and paint but you just get kind of like
0: a brown mud. Yeah. Um but Do there's I, a really cool well blue and yellow makes green normally. Is it yellow and purple? Oh or? yeah yeah.
1: Well uh no, so there's a there's a thing. It's it's really weird. Like, check this out. Go there, go to the okay. you know, Wikipedia page. And there is a blue square and a yellow square with little plus symbols in the middle. And then what you do is you like you know you know those magic eye posters where you like yeah. put your yeah. eyes up. And, so you need to get your eyes to cross so that only one eye is seeing the yellow and one eye is seeing the blue. Because mm-hmm. if those colors both enter the same eye, you get a different color. And what happens is if you do it correctly, you will, your brain will for the, maybe for the first time in your life, see a color you've never seen before hmm. <laughs> and you look at it and you're like, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's yellow blue, you know, like we don't really have a yellow blue or a blue yellow, right. you know, we have greenish Green. yellow or reddish blue, you know, right. but like, we don't have a, a, so try, try it out, little bonus thing. Um, that's kind of related to your topic and fits in with all the, mm-hmm. the colors we're talking about. Yeah.
2: Cool. Um, so that's what I have for you today. The color that doesn't exist.
1: Awesome, thank you. Very yeah. neat.
2: So we're gonna take a quick break and when we return, it'll be Victoria.
0: Hey, we're back and i am going to talk about well this is a little bit of human body trivia that a lot of people have heard the following question okay what is the hardest substance in the human body you guys know this the one hardest yeah the hardest hardest
1: substance
0: it's your teeth yeah tooth enamel exactly
1: Oh, see, I was gonna be a, a smartass <laughs> and say the iron in your blood, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, funny you should mention iron. We'll get we'll get to some iron things.
1: Okay, but okay. um, mm.
0: tooth enamel is made of a mineral called apatite, specifically hydroxyapatite, which, I, given that it's teeth, sort of <laughs> seems very fitting. That's, that's awesome. That's so I love fitting. it. I love it. Yeah, it's a form of calcium phosphate, and. Sure. You know, there are actually not all that many minerals that are produced by biological processes. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of an interesting intersection of biology and geology that bodies can produce minerals, but organisms are able to control the formation of mineral crystals in some very precise ways that can give them really huh. unusual properties and then also can combine them with organic compounds, like our bones are a mixture of um. Also, hydroxyapatite, and you know, different um, types of connective tissue and stuff. Mm-hmm. But besides hydroxyapatite uh, in teeth and bone, some of the most common structural minerals that you might have heard of in the animal kingdom uh, include calcium carbonate, which is used in things like oyster shells and coral. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And silicates, which are used by actually not animals, but uh, small sea creatures like diatoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's some minerals, uh, biominerals that are not as well known or common. Uh, Magnetite.
1: Do do tell. Yeah,
0: magnetite is actually one that we have mentioned a bit in the context of bird migration. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's believed to likely play a role in wayfinding among many different species. And in fact, there's magnetite in the human brain. Although how much of that is due to pollution and how much of it is due to our brain (laughs) chemistry is a bit of an open question at the moment, a little disturbing. Uh, I didn't go too far down that rabbit hole. (laughs) Uh, Probably a good plan. Yeah. Um, But magnetite is significantly harder than tooth enamel up to three times harder actually. And it's an iron containing mineral. So today I want to talk about an animal that uses magnetite for, not necessarily for wayfinding, although perhaps it does, but I'm going to talk about chitons. Do you guys remember or know what a chiton is, Mm. this ring a bell? It rings a very, very
1: tiny microscopic bell. Not microscopic. I can barely... Nope. No, I mean no. I mean oh, okay. the bell is microscopic. It. Yeah. It's, it's very very quiet.
0: I think my ringing. brain is conflating it with uh, chitons. Mm-hmm. Which is, oh, like the, same the thing. right? No, not yeah. like chitin. The min, the not mineral, but like uh, structural yeah. material. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, chiton, this no. is spelled C H I T O N. They okay. are marine mollusks, so Woo-hoo! they're related to snails, oysters, octopuses. Although they have their own class within the mollusk. So, you know, they're not super mm-hmm. closely related to any of those features gotcha. that I just named. Um, and they have a generally oval shape and eight overlapping shells on their back that provide mm-hmm. protection. And then their underside is a foot, kind of like a snail's foot that they creep along on. And yeah. they crawl around on rocks and hard surfaces in the ocean. And they live by scraping algae off of rocks with a, a special oh. kind of um, a, sort of a barbed tongue. It's called a radula. And it's yeah, yeah. covered okay. with lots of little tiny teeth. So Horrifying. Yeah. What are
1: those teeth made out of?
0: <laughs> well, it looks, you know, it looks a bit like a zipper, actually. It's not that horrifying. The radula. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. that's good. It's long In and my narrow. my brain,
2: I'm pig- I, for some reason was picturing like a human tongue with a bunch of little barbs that was just like super sharp.
0: No, it's just a sort of long, oh, narrow strip with a bunch <laughs> of little Angel. nubs on it. That's why I was it's like, horrifying. Oh, exactly. That's why I was like, Oh no. But you know, if you think about crawling around over rocks all day and scraping algae off with your tongue, that is going to be pretty hard on your tongue. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. Even your teeth would wear down quite quickly. Uh, But each little tooth, each little rasp on the radula of the chiton is coated with magnetite, biomagnetite. And it just happily scrapes, scrapes, scrapes all the time. They do eventually wear down, but they're replaced continually. And this biomagnetite is uh, the hardest known biomineral. And it's it's unusual. I, I mean, I don't know if it's unusual, but the chiton actually forms it in a way that is significantly stronger than the magnetite that is found in rocks just because it it can very huh. precisely um lay down the crystalline structure of the mineral right wow. yeah okay I suppose that
1: shouldn't be that surprising our our teeth are laid down in very specific ways
0: right yeah yeah Well, the reason I decided to talk about this subject today is not just that it is amazing that chitons use magnetite in their teeth, but there was a relatively recent discovery uh, with some more information about chiton teeth. And this involves specifically the giant Pacific chiton, uh, which is uh, Crypto-chiton stellari, which is uh, the largest chiton in the world. And it is nicknamed the Wandering Meatloaf which should give it. you some oh. clue as to its appearance. <laughs> and Does for those it who you listening like at home,
1: meal. you now understand where the episode title came from.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good.
1: Done. Check that off my list. Episode title sorted.
0: Glad okay. <laughs> I took care of that for you. Done. Um, yeah. Well, these scientists, they were interested to see how this ultra hard magnetite on the outside of each tooth connects to the underlying tissue, which is relatively soft. Uh, it's actually made of chitin, the biomaterial, like Mm -hmm. the insect shells and lobster shells and stuff is made of. Um, so the chiton has chitin. It's got kind of a a core and each tooth that is made of chitin and the radula is also made of chitin and each tooth Hmm. is quite small. Hmm. And this, um, this core is there, and it's it's a very so it's a very small distance from that very hard outer part of the tooth to the inner part of the tooth that's a softer material. So it's only a few hundred micrometers, uh, which is a, a couple human hairs, approximately. Right.
1: Okay. Real small. Wow. Yeah. That's
0: tiny. And so the hardness just varies incredibly over this very short space, and that can Lead to unique stresses on the material so they were interested in kind of how the chiton bridges that gap if you will not mm-hmm. an actual gap but that that material difference um, and so they were looking into this and they did all kinds of sort of spectroscopy and analysis of the different parts of the tooth and the core of the tooth and while doing this, they discovered another iron containing mineral within the tooth, nanoparticles of a mineral that's called Santa Barbarite, uh, which is an. <laughs> <laughs> where where it's was actually, it found? <laughs> it's yeah. where actually. could that
1: it possibly have been discovered? <laughs> well, I
0: thought it was from California too, but actually it's from right. uh, like an Italian mine that is also called Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah. Shoot. Okay. okay. Wow. Yeah, it's an, it's an iron phosphate compound which has never. Been found before in any living creature, hmm. and in fact, the mineral itself was only discovered in the year 2000, and occurs in a just a small handful of locations in the world, as far as wow, we know. cool! And it's um, it's an amorphous mineral, which means it doesn't form regular crystals. So, sort of like if you think of obsidian, like volcanic glass, mm-hmm. um, that's another amorphous material. If you pack it, it just kind of doesn't have a cleavage plane mm-hmm. um, but it the chiton has little nanoparticles of this iron phosphate mineral, danbarbright, that occur in diff- like specific locations in the tooth, and the scientists think that the special properties of this mineral and the very carefully graded way that it's laid down really help the chiton's radula, its tongue have the remarkable flexibility and abilities that it has. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And (laughs) it was kind of almost a two-for-one paper. They found this mineral in the tooth, and then they just decided to go ahead and 3D print some materials based on... Why not? The the, the materials that they they had found in the tooth. Um, And they these printed materials were able to show similar mechanical properties to the chiton teeth in terms of their um, like flexibility and strength and stuff. It sounds
1: like someone could make a really awesome sandpaper.
0: Yeah. But this is actually (laughs) kind of a persistent problem in, or I don't know if it's persistent problem, but like a problem in robotics Mm -hmm. where if you want to have a soft robot that can do hard things, um, it's hard to sort of connect those materials. So this is, you know, potentially a really important development in that yeah. uh, in that sense. Cool. Yeah. Um, and the paper that talked about this, uh, well, there, there were two papers, really. One was called Persistent Polyamorphism in the Chiton Tooth, uh, From a New Biomineral to Inks for ad- Additive Manufacturing. Um, that hmm. was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in June 2021. And there was an earlier paper from April 2010 in Materials Today that was called Analysis of an Ultra-Hard Magnetic Biomineral in Chiton Radular Teeth. That was about biomagnetite. Yeah, so,
1: That's awesome. Um, wow. That one was not on my radar.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Neither was it. It wasn't on mine either very you started cool. talking about teeth and I was fully prepared for you to start talking about like our enamel and everything and you went a very different direction yeah
0: a little misdirection there
2: very nice oh, nice oh, yeah. thanks Victoria
0: you're welcome that's, you. that's what we had this week and
1: awesome fun show thank you yeah
0: yeah thanks Talk everyone for listening we'll see yeah. you next week see you next week bye bye
1: thanks everyone for listening to today's show be sure to subscribe New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com, Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the
2: strange.